You've joined the Digital Transformation Success Podcast. I'm your host, Priscilla McKinney. I consult with leaders around the globe and bring their teams through a digital transformation journey. Realizing digital transformation across an entire organization is key to business success. While the phrase digital transformation is often used, it's not always understood. So we start each episode with my brief working definition. Digital transformation refers to the purposeful integration of digital technology into all areas of a business. It goes beyond technological innovations in that it requires a fundamental mindset shift of how to operate internally and deliver maximum value to customers at scale. When done well, it results in a culture change to an environment where opportunities for digital technology are not missed but are thoughtfully used to change established practices and processes for greater efficiency, flexibility, and profitability. You'll hear from consultants, trainers, executives, innovators, and thought leaders. We will avoid buzzwords, jargon, and leave behind our egos to help you take that next step toward digital transformation success. Let's dive in. Well, you're in for a treat today. I have Greg Sattel. This is a new connection for me, but this is an author of two books on the whole topic of digital transformation. You're going to be so excited. We're going to dive into both of those books a little bit more, but he is a transformation and change expert. He's an international keynote speaker and like I mentioned, best-selling author, but he really is looking at how we map innovation and he was selected as one of the best business books of 2017. So I do want to tee up and give you a chance to go check out all the things that he's doing at Greg Sattel. It's Greg, S-A-T-E-L-L.com. I'll mention that at the end of the show notes um, and at the end of the show and on the show notes, I want to make sure that you have every way to reach him. But Greg, thanks for coming on Digital Transformation Success. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so let's start with this. I have so many people who listen who either have a book in them or are just in the process. You have already written two on this, on your expertise. So tell us a little bit about how book one morphed into I've got another book and where where did book two really, um, you know, I guess it really expound on your expertise. So tell us a little bit about how you got to that book, Cascades. So Cascades was the second book, but I actually started it first. Uh, And to be honest, I couldn't sell the book to a publisher. And then the idea for mapping innovation came later. That Uh, is so interesting. Okay. I don't, I'm sure there's going to be an opportunity. They work together quite well because I, I talk in, in, in mapping innovation, I talk about how innovation is never a single event. It's always a process of discovery, engineering, and transformation. And then, of course, Cascades is really about transformation and Mm -hmm. using the principles of social and political movements to drive transformation and change within an organization. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest mistakes I see the organizations I work with make about digital transformation is they confuse it with innovation. Mm. You don't want a transformation to be innovative. You want it, you, you know, when, when, when you implement something in an entire organization at scale, you want to be sure that it works, right? So you don't want to start with ideas. You want to start 
with concrete business objectives. Okay, so that that iterative uh, approach is really for the beginning and the discovery and the evaluation and the the improvement and and all of that. And then you want to actually know what it is you're headed for as a company. Well, well, technology is not the purpose of an enterprise. It's only a means to an end. So you need to know what that purpose is. For instance, um, in, in Cascades, I write about a number of different digital initiatives. Uh, one was at, at uh, Experian, uh, where the CIO, the, a new CIO came in, and all of his customers were telling him that he, they wanted real-time access to data. And knowing that, he knew that uh, that meant cloud technology. So the digital transformation was about, uh, was cloud technology, but the cloud technology was a means to satisfy that customer need. Mm -hmm. There wasn't anything innovative about what he was trying to do, but a couple of quick points that I think they're, they're important to understand. First, every transformation if a change is important and it's going to have an impact and affect how, what people do and how they think, there's always going to be some people who aren't going to like it. And they're going to work to undermine that change in ways that are dishonest and underhanded and deceptive. Oh, my gosh. And okay. you, need- you, you have to unpack that before you even tell me what we need to do. Unpack that a little bit more. Like, how have you seen that? in the real world manifest itself? Oh, in all sorts of ways. Usually it's the quiet people. Um, usually the ones who, who, who voice their concerns are usually not the problem. They're, uh, they're skeptical. Uh, they, they, so I'll give you, uh, let, let's stick with this experience example. So uh, I, let me go to the second point, which is that very few transformations are in, done in a vacuum, right? Uh, they're, they're always linked to other transformations. And the experience case was an excellent part of this because on the surface, it was a straightforward business transformation. Customer wants something, he wanted to give it to them. But in order to achieve that business transformation, he first needed to undergo a tech, technology transformation, a digital transformation, from on-premise to the cloud. Hmm. Uh, and, but, and to achieve that transformation, he needed to achieve a skills-based transformation from waterfall to agile. So what looked maybe from this, on the surface to be a straightforward business transformation, or maybe from another aspect, a, 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 a digital transformation was actually three transformations all mm-hmm. stacked on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And about the resistance, people had good reason to hate each one of these transformations. For the business transformation, a lot of people didn't like it because they were worried it would undermine their business model. Experian has made a lot of money for a very long time selling batch process credit reports to just sort of open the kimono and give the, uh, give the customers access made a lot of people concerned. Some people voiced those concerns. Some people just quietly tried to undermine. For the digital transformation, the cloud transformation, 
a lot of people, uh, and again, not at all unreasonable. Uh, they were worried about cybersecurity. Now, while this transformation was underway, one of Experian's key competitors, Equifax, had one of the biggest data breaches of the decade. So really not at all a, an unreasonable concern to have. Um, and for the agile transformation, a lot of people said, you know, quite rightfully, hey, I've been doing this a long time and I take a lot of pride in my work and I don't want to hear I've been doing it wrong all these years. In fact, I think I do a pretty good job. So, uh, you know, there were any number of ways that this could have gone south, but because he treated it as more like a social or political movement than a typical exercise in change management, he was able to achieve this transformation in less than three years. And then here's the good news. That's where the innovation comes in. Because once he was able to achieve that digital transformation, all sorts of good things happen. With that capability, they uh, embarked on a business model transformation with respect to a platform called Ascend. It also enabled them to look at artificial intelligence in a completely different way and, and, and really innovate their services. So digital transformation is not innovation. It enables innovation. And those are two very different things. Mm, I love that. I want to unpack one other thing that you mentioned there. Um, and that was at the very beginning, it was, a, you, you, you just let this little secret out very, very quickly, but it was that Experian, they were actually responding to an unmet client need. And I think that's really interesting to think about where this particular transformation started from. It's not just someone up high saying, Hey, I want to change things. This is, a, you know, this is we just want to, you know, um, a pet project type of thing. So tell me a little bit more about that. Do you find with all of your experience when people have really either done different innovative courses or they've gone through like courses and changes of digital transformation, whatever they may be, have you seen a difference with what the foundational issue was? Is it been different if it came kind of from up on high all the way down or if it has come up organically from a customer's need? So. It only works if there's a real need, right? It, it couldn't be a customer's need. It could be an employee need. Um, sometimes it comes on high. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, another one of my favorite examples and possibly my, my absolute favorite example, and, 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 and you'll understand why in a second, uh, there were three guys at Procter & Gamble, and they said they were working in the research organization, and they said, hey, you know what? Um, Procter & Gamble's been around a long, long time. And there's a lot of processes at Procter & Gamble um, that are pretty clunky. And they've been around a long time, too. You know, somebody decided how to do something 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. And that's how we still do it. You know, they still use paper at the loading docks. And, you know, what? not the type of thing that you, you know, you'd think of, but Procter & Gamble has a lot of loading docks, right? <laughs> if, they, if those loading docks are inefficient, it, it might not seem like a, a huge, but, but that has an impact. And if you put them enough impacts like that together, you can really, um, you know, you, you can really make a company run better, not just from a, an efficiency point of view, 
but just from a a a employee experience point of view because mm-hmm. clunky slow processes are miserable to work with mm-hmm. so these three guys sort of i don't know like like very very middle management even maybe lower middle management i mean young guys they took it upon themselves and they said you know what we're going to take one process that's a bottleneck that takes that took weeks and they worked on it for months and using digital tools they were able to get it down to a matter of hours from weeks to hours and uh, they won an innovation award and they got some executive sponsorship to to actually do this throughout the research uh, uh organization to and it was sort of an ongoing process improvement uh, through digital tools. And just as they were sort of embarking on this, uh, Cascades was coming out and they used Cascades as their model. And within mm-hmm. 18 months, they built a global movement within Procter & Gamble's uh, research organization of 2,500 people encompassing six uh, major facilities, innovation centers throughout the world, and now are are sort of rolling it out to to Procter & Gamble uh, as Mm. a whole. So that wasn't a customer need, but there was a clear business objective that Mm -hmm. people saw value in. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge mistake. So many times when when we have sort of our initial meeting, a lot of people within organizations, of course, the lead on a digital transformation uh, project tends to be, you know, someone who, who who loves, likes technology. And that's what they want to talk about is the technology, whether it's AI or cloud or whatever it is, um, you know, uh, RPA or, RPA. or whatever it is. <laughs> right. um, and nobody cares about that. Right. Nobody cares about technology except, you know, technology people. Um, And a lot of people say, listen, I don't want somebody coming in and screwing up my job. I like I know how to do my job. Things are running just fine. And then you're going to take, you know, there's a real fear that, uh, you know, that's not going to work well. So it's really, really important to talk in terms of what is the business objective? Are we trying to serve clients better? Are we trying to improve quality? Are we trying to reduce costs? Are we trying, you know, whatever it is, that business, are, are, we, are we trying to improve uh, uh, employee experience? Because every change starts off with the grievance. Mm-hmm. There's something somebody doesn't like <laughs> and they <laughs> want it to change. But uh, all too often, digital transformation initiatives don't start off with agreements. They start off with, I really like this technology. Right. Okay. And that, I, that's never good enough. Maybe a little short-sighted. You know what? It's so interesting that you hit on this issue. I've been asking several of my guests about it lately, about the conundrum, the issues that we're facing with supply chain. And some people kind of, you know, point to, you know, we have some digital transformation that's needed. We need, you know, kind of like our systems are broken or these kinds of things. But I've had a couple of really interesting conversations 
around the fact that there are some very clunky ways of doing business that actually workers are no longer willing to put up with anymore. And so nobody wants to get paid 36,000 or 70,000 or, you know, 90,000 for that matter to be doing a particular job that is so clunky that they feel like is, I mean, why is this not automated? I, I'm really interested to hear your take on that, just as a small little rabbit hole. Well, I, <laughs> I really do think the supply chain issue is an issue of, uh, you know, decades of uh, optimization without investing in optimization at the expense of resilience. Mm. And this is the problem. I, I mean, you know, you can't get the container, so you can't load the ship. You get it on the ship. You know, it's got to go to the dock. It can't it can't get to the dock because we've underinvested in our ports. And even if it could, there's nobody to unload it. And even if you get unload it, there's not a truck driver, you know, to, to take it. And then even if you get it on the truck, it still needs to get unloaded. And I mean, any sort of snafu anywhere along those lines is going to reverberate throughout mm-hmm. the supply chain. Mm-hmm. You know, plus you have, and, and that's just sort of the United States side of it. You know, then you have overseas, China's got all sorts of problems again with COVID again with, with fuel, uh, you know, it's, it's, we, we just hyper-optimized these supply chains. Uh, and now we need a resilience transformation. We had mm. we had a just-in-time inventory transformation. We have to look at resilience. You can't always just look at optimization. Mm. And in, in lots of different ways, right? I mean, supply chain is only one of them. Um, right. You know, obviously, our public health system is another. Mm-hmm. Uh our uh, our healthcare system is uh, you know a third the the way uh you know our education system is a fourth you know you know just a- across the board we have underinvested in resilience because the feeling has been hey you know if you can squeeze out an extra ten fifteen twenty percent you know or even five percent of efficiency, that has to be the first priority. Right, I, think we're, right. I think those chickens to a certain extent are coming home to roost. Oh gosh, that's crazy. But nobody has given really an, uh, really a clear um, dividing line for me before about this idea that digital transformation is not innovation. So let's talk a little bit about innovation because I believe, you know, kind of to the point of your book, Mapping Innovation, you ended up talking with hundreds of executives and scientists and, and, and looking for what was going on really when so many people were getting pressured to innovate, but what was happening? So tell me a little bit about that and how that really sparked the book. Well, for me, it was really, for most of my career, I was managing organizations and I, and I felt an incredible pressure, as you, as you pointed out, to, to innovate but I wasn't really sure how to go about it. And every time I looked, somebody had a different idea about how you're supposed to innovate. So, you know, you look at the design thinkers, they say, you say, oh, wow, that, you know, that really seems good. I mean, Steve Jobs thought it was great. And, and you know, Ideo, you know, built this wonderful practice around it. And, and uh, you know, Stanford's built this entire school around it. And you, you look into it and you say, oh, look at the needs of the end user. And then, you know, and then 
use that to to rapidly prototype and iterate towards a radically better solution you think that's really fantastic until you read you know clayton christensen and disruptive innovation and he says you know uh, innovators dilemma and all this and he says well that's the way you you go out of business by paying too much attention uh, uh, to your you know customer when and and not noticing when the basis of competition changes and that when that happens you know you end up just getting better and better at a bunch of stuff people care about less and less and that's how you get disrupted you know so how can both those things be true and then you have things like open innovations and lean startups and on and on and on just this sort of confused jumble of strategies so that's what i sort of set out to to figure out over 10 years as you mentioned talking to every sort of innovator I could find from uh, Nobel Prize winning scientists mm-hmm. to entrepreneurs to executives at some of the biggest corporations in the world. And what I found was, is that innovation is really about solving problems. What, what really makes the difference is, uh, is knowing what type of problem you're trying to solve. So there's as many ways to innovate as there are different types of problems to solve. And I had sort of come up with, I, I discovered this, uh, a, a innovation matrix that helps you classify the different problems so that you can match the problem to the solution rather than starting with the solution and trying to squeeze the problem through it. Mm-hmm. I love that. So in hearing that breakdown for me, then who is your best audience for the two different books? If you looked at mapping innovation and then you look at cascades, like who does, who does that serve perfectly? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, <laughs> That's my I, job, Greg. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. Um, both books I wrote for leaders mm-hmm. uh, because that's as as a lead, someone who who leads organizations, uh, who led organizations myself, that's always my perspective. Um, but uh, over the years, especially with with the Cascades work, uh, I'm becoming more focused on sort of that middle manager rather than than just the senior leadership. Mm. Okay. And if you kind of ventured out more into, and we talked a lot about innovation, move into Cascades and, and, and how you see that that makes the connect. Well, Cascades is really about transformation specifically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just the origin of the book is, is very, very different. So where uh, they're both rooted in, in personal experience, where mapping innovation was rooted in experience leading organizations cascades it was rooted in my experience in one particular experience where i was uh leading a major news organization in uh, during the orange revolution in ukraine mm. and that's what got me interested in transformation because it was the most amazing thing to be you know in the middle of an, a revolution in a country, a nonviolent revolution. And it was the first time, it was just one of those times where you think, wow, the world doesn't really work the way I thought it worked. 
you tend to think that there's there's this certain people and institutions and they have power and that's how things are run and then all of a sudden but you know nobody who had any power at all seemed you know any traditional sense of power seemed to have any idea how to affect events Mm -hmm. not the journalists i would talk to in the newsroom every day not the other business leaders not the political leaders there was just this mysterious force that nobody could could describe but nobody could deny that was moving things along and i said gee i'd i'd like to be able to do that right like i'd like to be able to bottle that force uh and you know that that just made things change and and i was just amazed the way that thousands upon thousands of people who'd ordinarily be doing very different things would all of a sudden stop what they were doing and start doing the same thing Mm. in almost perfect unison Mm. so that's interesting that's interesting and actually that concept the concept you wrote about with cascades with these small groups that they're you know they're loosely connected loosely connected united by a shared purpose i love that so uh, small groups loosely connected uh, united by a shared purpose i am working on my book right now called collaboration is the new competition and actually this is what piqued my interest to talk with you was this concept that you had about cascades because it is not what people always assume. Like this is the group I assigned for the change. This is the group. Like it doesn't happen like that. There's something that's so much more organic um, that really creates movements that last. And that's actually one other underwriting principle about your book um, cascades. It's, it's about creating movements that then drive transformational change, not just say, okay, Let's Absolutely. just, let's do this change. Like, no, let's, what, let, let's do the natural thing first. And then the, the change well, will be an outpouring. Well, uh, so two things on that. First of all, that phrase sort of encapsulates the science of network cascades. Mm. That's what the science tells us, right. which is interesting because it's pretty much the opposite of what change consultants have been telling us. <laughs> the change consultants, they've been telling us, oh, you need to, you know, you need to to create a sense of urgency for change. You need to, mm-hmm. um, you know, you need to kick kick it off with a big communication campaign. <laughs> but often that backfires, specifically right. because those people who hate the change, that's just alerting them that they better get started undermining it, mm-hmm. uh, or it might already, you know, or it might actually happen. Right. Well, I've been, I've been of that mindset though forever, Greg, because I'm by training, by training, I'm a cultural anthropologist. So that's like standard Margaret Mead right there. So once I read it from you, I'm like, yes, that is true in, you know, in a, any kind of culture. And it is also true. um, You know, the same humans, just because they find themselves in a culture that is in an office, it is no different. Right. So if, if you think back to that Experian example, the CIO, a guy named Barry Leibenson, uh, he, you know, he, he was global CIO. He had the authority to say, we're switching over to the cloud. That's what we're doing. He had that authority. It was fully in his authority to do that. But he didn't. Instead, mm-hmm. he went and found people who were already excited about cloud technologies and he created something that in our workshops and our work, we call a co-optable resource. 
which is a a resource that people can take and co-opt for their own purposes. Because people adopt change not for your reasons, but for their own reasons. So he created something called the API Center of Excellence. And anybody who wanted to build cloud-based products would get help from an internal consulting uh, arm. They would get help to do things that they wanted. He also did something in terms of a keystone change with internal APIs, which didn't attract nearly as much resistance. But because he was able to identify, and it it wasn't that even that hard to identify people who, who were excited about the cloud. It's one of the most exciting technologies to come around for a long time. Um, but because he he used his power as CIO, not to force anybody to adopt the cloud, but to empower the people who wanted to, he was able to help them become successful. And they were able to attract other people who could attract other people still. So as the leader, it was his role to create that sense of shared purpose and connect those groups. But he wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't mandate the change. He empowered it. So six months was just helping those early guys be, be successful. Um, By a year, it started to become a performance issue. Hey, those guys over there, they're doing great things with the cloud. Uh, You guys, not so much. (laughs) you know, a bit more of a nudge, but the writing was on the wall. And by year three, it was, you know, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, by that point, they're, they're only, you know, so, so the, the resistors are in the minority and they just, they either get on board, quit or get fired. Oh, but yeah. that comes, that comes at the end, right? not at the beginning. You don't ask commitment. You don't ask people to risk their career, their performance on something they haven't seen work yet. Mm. That's interesting. And 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 that's a huge difference. This is something that, you know, by the time people were asked to adopt it, it had already been successful. And those early people who were implementing it, they were enthusiastic. They wanted it to work. And here's, and here's I think, a, 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 a sort of uh, good point to end with. If you feel the need to persuade people, you either have the wrong change or the wrong people. <laughs> okay, well, that goes really in alignment with what you're talking about with leadership. And I know you just you know, work with amazing global leaders. I mean, the, the, the people you've worked with in Europe and North America. And so that perspective of what you're saying from leadership, that it is to recognize right at the beginning, one of those two things, if one of those two things are off, the reality is what you're talking about, that sustainable change, it has to come through actually bringing people through the journey and not just forcing it. Well, they want that in the beginning, they have to want to go on it. If you're, right. if you're starting out, they have to want it. You think mm-hmm. of Gandhi and the Salt March. Started with, you know, 70, 80 of his most disciplined followers, the ones who wanted it, right? And 
that really is the key. You always want to start with a majority. You can always expand a majority out. The key is, is you get to choose where you start. That could be a majority of three people in a room of five. In fact, uh, the overthrow of Milosevic started that way. Five kids in a cafe. And then uh, the next day, six of their friends joined them. About a year later, they were like two, three hundred. A year after that, it was 70,000 and Milosevic was out of power, Mm -hmm. headed to The Hague where he would die in his prison cell. The same thing. You can always expand a majority out but once you're in the minority you will feel immediate pushback Mm -hmm. and you'll feel and you'll feel yourself trying to persuade people if you're trying to persuade people you have the wrong change or the wrong people oh i love it and if you want to hear more like that you need to go visit greg over at Greg Sattel, and it's G-R-E-G-S-A-T-E-L-L.com. Go check out his website, but also his books, of course, are available on Amazon, and you can check them out, and I'll put them in the show notes for sure. But Greg, thank you so much for taking your time and just really sharing your wisdom, that the outside perspective of, look, I've done this, I've seen it a million times, and let me tell you what it looks like when it's done right, and oh my gosh, can we please avoid these kinds of things? If, a if I can just uh, get in one plug 100 percent. i'd love it so every week on wednesdays at 5 p.m eastern we have a uh, a change maker session on clubhouse it's called what's your idea for change and we invite people with an idea for change to come and share it and get advice from a uh, community of experts and uh, it's a lot of fun we learn a lot and people really do get help Well, I have so much fun on Clubhouse, so you're going to need to send me the link, so I'll be sure to be on it, and I'll I'll have to think long and hard. What's my my idea that I can go ahead and have um, picked apart by Greg, because then it'll save me some time. We don't pick (laughs) apart ideas. We're there to help and empower. We're not not there to judge. (laughs) I love it, though. It's about collaborating, right, And, and bringing your ideas to the table, letting other people hear it. What I heard from you a lot was kind of this cross pollination. It doesn't just happen in politics doesn't just happen in you know boardrooms it um, doesn't just happen in communities that these are just the nature of driving really meaningful change that is very sustainable and so we need to learn from all sectors and bring them together but regardless Absolutely. regardless the whole thing you said about you know you you're either picking the wrong uh, the wrong change or you're picking the wrong people i think that um, no matter where you find yourself um, looking for for transformation that has to be key. That needs to be completely focused. I, I really love that. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. You're always welcome on the show. Thank you so much. And like I said, please be sure to go out and take a look at his books and visit him at gregsatel.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.